Inside Outside Innovation is the podcast that brings you the best and the brightest in the world of startups and innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger, founder of InsideOutside.io, a provider of research, events, and consulting services that help innovators and entrepreneurs build better products, launch new ideas, and compete in a world of change and disruption. Each week, we'll give you a front row seat to the latest thinking, tools, tactics, and trends in collaborative innovation. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger. And as always, we have another amazing guest. Today, we have Ben Nelson. He is the CTO and co-founder of Lambda School. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Lambda is an interesting concept out there, and you're getting a lot of attention and press. I know you just cleared your Series B fundraising and raised $30 million from a list of great venture capitals out there. And you are disrupting this whole space of innovation. So maybe to start the show off, why don't we talk a little bit about what is the concept of Lambda School and how did you go about thinking of it and kicking it off? So about two years ago, my co-founder and I, we wanted to create an online school. It's gone through actually quite a few different iterations to land on the product that we have now. I mean, initially it was teaching functional programming as like an evening class kind of a thing, hence the name Lambda School. That's where the name came from. And and then it moved to a three-month boot camp that was live and online, and that was kind of the unique, more of the unique focus and the value proposition. Yeah, I went through a couple different phases. We taught a bunch of free classes in the evening. We had about 20,000 people signed up for these different free classes that we were teaching, and we were using that to market and test people's appetites for different potential courses that we would offer. And we found that there were a lot of very talented, smart, hardworking people that just didn't have a strong financial position to come and attend a paid upfront course that we'd offer. And, and mm-hmm. you know, and as we looked into it, exploring different financing options that could be more flexible, you know, there's traditional debt, which still provides a lot of risk though. And it provided too much risk for most of these people because, you know, we were newer, so they didn't have as strong of confidence, you know, in like what the quality of the course would be. They'd seen our sample teaching and that kind of, you know, that helped a lot, but still, you know, there was uncertainty there. You know, that's a lot to swallow if you don't have a lot of income. So those traditional methods, they, they would have been better than just purely paid up front, but they weren't, weren't as ideal. And that's when we came onto this idea of an income share agreement. And then basically it was like taking the accessibility of debt one step further to where the student wouldn't be on the hook if their education didn't work out for them. So the basic idea of an income share agreement is that the student, they don't pay any tuition until they have a job making at least $50,000 a year. And at that point, they pay back a percentage of their salary for two years, and there's a cap on it. So the most that a student could pay is $30,000 total. The student comes through our nine-month program, now our nine-month full-time live structured online program, and then they get a job making 120 k or something like that. They're going to pay back to the max of 30 k Once we switched to this idea of an income share agreement, that by necessity cannibalizes your upfront revenue. We are profitable at that time, but then shifting into this model, that's when we went the venture capital route, decided to raise money. That's when we got into Y Combinator and then started going from there and it's been well-received. It definitely has been. It's definitely uh, controversial in a couple different ways. Obviously the existing industry out there, you know, be it existing universities and that are obviously looking at your models and saying, well, how can this work? And does this work outside of the traditional technology or coding school type of concept can be applied to other types of training or other types of education. So talk a little bit about disrupting an industry. Now have a target on your back to a large extent. People are looking at this as a new, potentially new model, a new way of doing business out there in the world of education. What's that like and what are you seeing and hearing out there? 
Originally, when we started out, we entered a pretty competitive industry, you know, starting out as like a, a three-month code boot camp, which there's hundreds of those in the United States, and we had to find ways to differentiate ourselves. And now we're pretty far removed from that model and kind of in our own category. And then now we are starting to notice several of our competitors that were kind of tangentially competitive have now changed quite a bit to mimic our model more. And we're starting to see that pressure. Yeah. And that's something that in our early stages, as we were getting going, that's something that we try not to let ourselves think about competition too much. Like we wanted to be aware of the industry and what was going on, but something that Y Combinator had coached us on was that competition isn't what typically kills an early startup. You know, maybe it's a founder breakup or, you know, just not finding a good product market fit or just, you know, there are bigger things to worry about. And now that a lot of those issues are solved and we're kind of past some of those early like milestones, you know, that we're in a little bit more stable of a position, there is a bit more of a target on our back and we are seeing copycats and competitors begin to pivot to, to match our model. So what do you think is kind of driving this new trend towards education and people wanting to adapt to new models out there? Obviously, you have rising student debt and, quite frankly, just a rising number of universities and that out there. What do you think are some of the trends that are driving new innovative models like yourself? You talk about disruptive innovation. And essentially, I think, like with universities, it's a race to provide a more and more expensive and premium experience. They've overshot the mark. And a lot of schools are they're are saddling students with a huge amount of debt and just like the ROI, like, and students are starting to wise up to that and realizing that it's not just a black and white, like, yes, you should always go to college and study whatever you want. And it works out in the end magically and, you know, gets kind of hand wavy around that. And, you know, and I think that, you know, people are starting to realize that they can get into a lot of trouble financially if they don't handle it in the right way, you know? And then another one is that with the fast rate of technological change, you're seeing a rise of demand for education for people in the middle of their careers, people that need to switch from whatever job they're in to something that is more high in demand, something that I guess essentially just like putting more like elasticity in the labor market. So there's demand to move labor from less desirable, lower paying positions into higher paying positions, but people want to make those moves. The companies need more engineers. And so, you know, that's part of that need as well. And that's a huge part of it, you know, like nine months full time, you don't have to pay until you're in a good job, you know, makes it very low risk. I mean, that that's really appealing to people that feel like they're in a dead-end job. It seems like that not only the changing world of work, but the changing skill set that you need is the ability that you used to have to you know go to a four-year university, kind of acquire the skills that you needed, and then get onto a career path and continue to work in that company for 20 years or, or whatever. seems to be changing or seem to be moving towards more of this portfolio type of work where you are working on a series of projects over the course of your lifetime, and you're constantly changing your skills in that. Obviously, that applies in the world of technology, where technology is changing and you need to learn new skill sets. How does it apply outside of the world of tech and outside of the world of coding, this idea that you have to have a growing, changing set of skills and tool sets to apply to new world work? I think a lot of it is that we're seeing entire job categories you know, getting disrupted, and it's that they need a complete ground up retraining in something that might be completely different than what they had done. And this is fairly speculative. Don't mean any offense to any listeners. We look at like the truck driving industry and just like with advances in artificial intelligence, machine learning, and all the automation and all the risks that that represents to the people that are truck drivers. And nobody knows exactly how that'll shake out, but it looks like there's probably going to be a lot of people there that will need to be retrained. Right. So there needs to be a way to move them into something that might be pretty different from driving altogether. 
maybe they don't want to go be an Uber driver, you know, or, or something, or, or maybe it's a complete revamp. Let's give them a completely new set of skills. And that's a big piece of like what we're offering too, is providing a path for people that are in a completely unrelated industry. As long as they can demonstrate the aptitude and the desire and the interest, you know, to succeed in this thing, then we'll give them a path to transition. So talk a little bit about the business model itself. So you've got almost this pay performance type of approach to education where, again, you're not getting any revenue up front. You're kind of saying, hey, trust us, we'll make you more employable and have the right skill sets and we'll help you find that first job in that. How do you go about paying the bills and obviously playing out this model that's, again, completely reverse of the way it's been done in the past? So initially, everybody thought we needed to require a deposit. And a lot of other schools out there that use income share agreements, they do require an upfront deposit because with an income share agreement, the risks of the student dropping out, it's higher. Initially, in our first couple of classes, we had actually fairly high dropout rates because the person, they can close their computer, go back to their job at Starbucks, and they're never going to have to pay anything on an income share agreement. And, and they got a couple months of training and, you know, and then they kind of throw in the towel, decide it's not for them. And, you right. know, and then we've spent a lot of time investing into their training. That was one of the first problems we've had to solve, you know, especially because we're online. Now that's not as much of an issue. Now our dropout rates are, you know, less than 10%. We've been able to engineer different ways into the curriculum and into or different processes into the, the course structure and the curriculum and you know, the way that we handle those student interactions that have minimized that. That was like a big thing we had to work through. Yeah, like the cash flow, that's something that's this tricky about this model because with the income share agreement, it slowly starts to build up over time. And fortunately, because we're online, if we want to add a bunch of students, we don't have to buy another classroom. We don't have to get a bunch of desks. We don't have those same physical constraints. And so it keeps our costs lower like in that regard. So that way our margins can absorb that longer payback period. And then it also makes it so we can invest in things like high quality instructors. You can pay more for staff and different things like that that directly improve the quality of the education. And that's, you know, really the reason why we pursue venture capital in the first place is so that we could push that out and, and then we may be raising some debt in the future to help with that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the reality is now that with students are graduating, they're not dropping out, they're getting jobs. And so essentially these income share agreements are a valuable security that we're producing. And that's something that, you know, the debt can be borrowed against. And then now different financing options are available. Let's change gears a little bit. You mentioned you were a Y Combinator company. Take us back to those early days when you're thinking about this new idea of a startup. What was it like to apply to Y Combinator, get in, and what did you learn from that particular experience? My co-founder and I, we had always wanted to go to Y Combinator. We had both read Paul Graham's blog, and that was something we had had interest in for several years. They asked, you know, some questions around scaling. You know, one is how could this become like a billion-dollar company? We started thinking about that, like with our model and with the income share agreement. You know, that's when it really clicked for us that this could be a scalable way to really make a dent in the student loan crisis in the United States and that we could really hit some scale. No other boot camp has really been able to scale their model. Everyone's been trying, but they've all kind of hit a ceiling. Thinking it from that perspective, you know, even just from like the application questions and that kind of, you know, guide our, our thinking a little bit. Through the application process, we were interviewed a bunch of extra times, I think because they were really on the fence with us, <laughs> just because <laughs> on the surface, we appeared very like, derivative, you know, we're just another coding bootcamp. And they kind of passed us around a couple of different partners that specialized in different areas, all looked at us. We honestly didn't think we were getting in because our, our final interview, they just drilled us a lot of really tough questions. Jeff Ralston actually all these, you know, really hard questions and he's pretty intense and made it feel like he was pretty skeptical of us. Anyway, but then they called us that night and we were accepted, which is a pretty cool feeling. And 
as we were going through Y Combinator. It's something that everyone really sings their praises, but it's absolutely true. It's a school for startups and they teach you how to do it. And the ability to sit down with people who have been in your shoes and been founders, you know, we'd have our weekly meetings with the partners and they would sit down with us, just my co-founder and I, and we'd talk about our problems with them. And my co-founder and I would joke that leaving those meetings, the advice we get in there would shift the value <laughs> of the company by millions of dollars, you know, right. every time we have those conversations. And so that was extremely valuable in shaping our strategy. And then just the network, it made it very easy to fundraise. I think fundraising without Y Combinator's help would have taken a lot more time, would have been much more challenging, but just with getting the Y Combinator branding, it, it made it so we could just really focus on the product and a lot of those side things of like fundraising and even stuff around how to avoid pitfalls in fundraising to not get into bad contracts or terms with investors or right. like the standardization that they have around that. All of that really just made it so we could focus on building the product, which has been extremely valuable and helpful. I can't recommend them enough. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's almost a startup school pay for performance type of environment, but yeah. it's slightly different than a coding school. So I was going to ask the question, how do you see Lambda School evolving and changing if you move beyond the core technology skill set? Or what do you see out there in the world of education and how does this apply outside of world technology? An analogy I like to use is that Amazon in the beginning, they started out by selling books, not just that they were a bookstore that stumbled onto other models and said, hey, we can sell other things. It was they wanted to sell everything, but they very intentionally started with books because that was just like strategically, like it, it made the most sense. And, mm -hmm. and then they've been able to work their way out from that. And that's kind of how we see technology. So we teach stuff that's, you know, IT focused. So we have like six different courses now that are all around software engineering. And that's because it just works really well online in an online classroom setting. We are actively researching and looking into ways to expand beyond that. Something we've looked heavily at, like a nursing school, um, you know, that would probably require an in-person component just because some of the things that are required. But really the idea is to expand out and just to create the, the Amazon of education. Really, we're focused on getting a job. Universities, they'll have research as a big part of it, or, you know, mm -hmm. if you want to get a PhD and pursue research in academia, we're not trying to challenge that. Our entire focus is let's take somebody from nothing to a paying job in the field that they want to be in. And we'll do it and make it as accessible as possible. And for many careers, that means it'll be a live online interactive experience where they can attend from home because that keeps their costs lower, faster and easier. But then for some, you know, we may have a campus at some point, you know, for some that require a physical presence. So the last topic I want to talk about is, is kind of the individuals and the people that are using your service or that are not using your service. Are there particular skills or traits that seem to be more attractive to this type of model than others? You know, obviously, I would imagine being a self-starter is one of those core components, especially for online training. But are there other skills or other things that you're learning about as far as how the world of work is changing and, and how people can adapt to this new world of work? We live in an extremely distracting world. And so the ability to focus or just having the discipline to be able to like remove distractions or put yourself in a distraction-free environment, that goes a long way towards success. As much as possible, we filter for people that are hungry, you know, that are willing to work hard, that are willing to, you know, just be continually curious and asking questions and it starts to get into the realm of the cliche a little bit, but those really are the things we look for. And we've come to understand that it's extremely difficult to predict those qualities in people and using traditional methods. And so 
when our students apply, we don't ask for test scores or we don't really care as much like if they graduated from college or if they even graduated from high school. And we will consider those things and those can demonstrate that they have worked hard or shown that they can stick with things. We have a free course that we put everybody through. It's an online intro to programming course. And what we found is just by checking people's aptitude as they go through this course, that helps us test for one like discipline and consistency. Like, are they able to actually finish it? Because open-ended online classes that don't have a deadline, like pretty hard to finish those oftentimes or find a motivation to do that. So if you could finish that, it's a pretty positive signal. And then just, you know, look at how they perform in that course. Like it's more confidence that they can pick up and run with the material. And we do have another interview that we do. They do submit an application and we look through a bunch of other steps, you know, but really if they can perform well in our course, then we're pretty confident at that point that we can invest in the student and that, that they will perform well with our curriculum. So is there any risk from the standpoint of if this becomes more the traditional way of education and that, what are the risks of potentially having a wide variety of folks that aren't as self-starting or aren't as disciplined or being kind of thrown to the wayside or, or not being able to adapt to the new world of work? Are there any challenges that you see coming out to play as this model and that evolves? What will be key is as we scale, we need to make sure that we do maintain high standards, you know, with admission. So making sure that there is good vetting. And, you know, we don't want to be, you know, like Stanford and Harvard, they're great programs, prestigious, wonderful schools. But part of the value proposition there is how exclusive it is. And they get a lot of positive selection bias. You kind of wonder sometimes, well, if you took the same top 1% of students and put them all in some other university group together, what would the outcomes of that university be? So you wonder how much of it is school and how much of it is positive selection bias and how exclusive it is and everything. Our approach is we want to have a high standard But it would be like if Stanford said every single person can get in if they have a 32 ACT and a 3.8 GPA out of high school or something like that. We'll accept everybody and make it work and if you can maintain the quality. So that's more of our approach is we want to have a high bar, but then accept anyone who is willing to get above the bar and is willing to do the work and then figuring out how to have a scalable and robust educational process that provides that consistent high quality value to students that, you know, they get above that bar, you know, at scale. Well, last question I want to ask is what's next for you and Lambda School? What are the biggest challenges or opportunities that are you're going to be facing in the next year or so? The biggest one is figuring out scalable processes for how to get students placed. So like placing students at scale. Mm-hmm. That's the big question. That's the final question. If we can solve that, then everything else falls into place. You know, we've had good outcomes. The thing that we're needing to figure out is how do we shift our model or how do we adapt things to make it so we can get people placed more quickly? So something we've done recently, so the course is nine months long now instead of six. So part of that is to provide more depth to the students in their education. But then also we have a guided job search. So the students are doing a full-time job search every day. They're practicing interview prep, all these different things and reaching different milestones. And the idea is that we want to remove this false finish line of graduation. Because if one of our students, if they graduate and don't get a job, that doesn't mean anything. And people ask us about a certificate and like, do you provide any kind of certificate or things like that? And what we like to say is that we'll, we'll get you a job. That's your certificate. And that's the most valuable thing we can give you. And, you know, so we've had to make a lot of adaptions. There's a lot of experiments that are currently in place. And that's where a lot of our organizational resources and executive resources are all focused on what ways can we make that work. And so that's really the big question right now. And if we can solve that, I'm very confident that Lambda School will be a great company. Well, Ben, I appreciate you being on Inside Outside Innovation, talking about some of the new changes that are happening in the world of work. If somebody wants to find out a little bit more about yourself or the school, what's the best way to do that? Head to lambdaschool.com. 
That's where all the information about our courses. And then I have a bio on there as well. That's it for another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. If you want to learn more about our team, our content, our services, check out insideoutside.io or follow us on Twitter at the IO Podcast or at Artinger. Until next time, go out and innovate.